Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Abel Torres. I'm Professor and Chair of Dermatology at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And today I have the privilege of working with Maria Schneeweiss, who is a Clinical Research Fellow in the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics in the Department of Medicine and Department of Dermatology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And we will be addressing the topic of comparative safety of systemic immunomodulatory medications in adults with atopic dermatitis. So welcome, Maria. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I'm very excited to talk about this with you. So I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about the background, and then I'll be asking you some questions, Maria. So let's start. As people know, severe atopic dermatitis is increasingly treated with systemic immunomodulatory drugs, and yet we know that their safety is unclear. So the research that Maria was looking at was to look at this, and their objective was to evaluate the comparative risk of serious bacterial and opportunistic infections among patients with severe atopic dermatitis that are using these systemic immunomodulatory medications in their routine care. So that was basically what they were looking at. And now let's talk a little bit more about this. So Maria, your research you know, focuses on using large national insurance claims databases to help answer the questions about the safety of new systemic drugs in dermatology. Can you please share your insights on the opportunities and limitations of such big data studies in dermatology and why they are important? Absolutely. So overall, I think the role of these databases is really to complement RCT work, randomized controlled trials. From RCTs, we've seen how the drugs act in the clinical trial setting. Now, how does this play out in clinical practice? And that's where the databases really come in. In these databases, we have longitudinal individual patient data. So this is really important because we have clear markers of what drug was used when and what outcome happened at what point in time. And when you have that information for millions of people, you can embed cohort studies to compare users of one drug to users of another drug with regard to health outcomes. So we were looking at infection, and this can include other safety events or even efficacy. And the key advantage is, of course, the very large size of these populations, that they're representative of clinical practice, and the affordability of these studies compared to some of times these multi-million dollar RCTs or prospective clinical cohort studies. And we're also able to compare against viable clinical alternative treatments. And just going back to representativeness, as you know, women of childbearing age, pregnant women, children, older adults, multimorbid patients, they're frequently excluded from clinical trials. And so we don't have information on the safety and effectiveness of these drugs in these populations. But in clinical practice, of course, these patients do often receive the drugs. And with these databases, we can also study these populations and, of course, off-label use. On a high level, it sounds very straightforward and logical, but as usual, the devil's in the details. We're working with data that are generated in routine healthcare setting. So I, as the investigator, wasn't in charge of what to measure, how to measure it, when to measure it. 
anything that you bill for at the end of a patient visit is collected in these databases, including any procedures you did, diagnoses, ICD diagnoses you billed for, labs, lab results. The patient was admitted. We can see the hospital discharge diagnoses. We can also see if they had a medication filled, so not just prescribed, but that they went to the pharmacy and filled it, which is important when comparing drugs. Things that we don't have are things like an easy score, because that's not something you can bill for. It's something you write in a note. We also don't know the reason the patient is taking the medication. While we can infer that if they had a diagnosis of AD and then a day later picked up a prescription for dupilumab, it's likely that the dupilumab was prescribed for AD, but we don't know. So you can imagine you need robust methods on how to use these data and work with them. It's really important to filter out all the noise and to avoid biases or false associations. But as you can see, these large databases really perfectly complement the RCTs that we all love. I mean, if you just think about the highly efficacious immunomodulating agents we now have available, they were approved in these placebo-controlled randomized trials, sometimes no larger than 300 patients. And sometimes the safety events that we have lingering in the back of our minds may be one in a thousand, which would be unlikely to be captured in these small studies. And um, databases can help complement that information. That's very helpful information. So let's talk a little bit about your paper. In your paper, how do you approach the data? In other words, you apply multiple methodological strategies, such as a one-to-one propensity core matching. Can you please go into a little bit more detail about these methods and why you chose them and why they are important? Yeah, absolutely. So overall, a good strategy to design a robust observational study is to first complement the RCT that you would want to do. Would you have the money, RFB approval, et cetera? Um, and from that principle, it derives that you'd want to study new users, for example, new users of a biologic or new users of a small molecule systemic. This way, you have a clear starting point for the study akin to the point of randomization in a trial. Because by design, both of these patient groups were seen by a physician, and it was decided to start on this medication or escalate to a new treatment. And that makes the patients more similar in the absence of baseline randomization. And then we also prefer that we have active comparators because placebos are obviously not available in observational data. And defining a new user group is really a funny business because there might be a good reason why people don't get started on a treatment. So the populations aren't similar enough for comparison. For example, they might not be sick enough. And so then you're comparing very sick patients to very to healthier patients, which can bias results. And luckily for most conditions, we have viable treatment alternatives. So for us, for example, we compared against all of the non-biologic systemic options available for AD patients with cyclosporin, mycophenolate, azathioprine, methotrexate, and prednisone. So once we have a cohort of new users and active comparators, we still need to make sure that in the absence of this baseline randomization, that any risk factors for the outcomes of for infection are balanced between the groups. And for that, we have PS scores that kind of mimics the randomization process. So propensity score matching allows us to make the groups as similar as possible with regard to any risk factors, prior treatments, comorbidities, so that really the only difference between the patients is that one patient started methotrexate and one started cyclosporin. This way, it's more likely that 
when we see an infection, it's more likely that it was due to the drug itself and not to a comorbidity or another infection risk factor. So to do this, we take each patient and we look back over the six months before they started their treatment. And we collect all information on any risk factors, comorbidities, other treatment, anything that would be relevant for getting an infection. And then for each patient, we enter these variables into a logistic regression model to estimate the probability of getting treated. This probability um, is a number between zero and one, and this is the propensity score. And then we match each patient in the treatment group to a patient with the same score in the comparator group. So for example, this way we can compare one female with a recent infection who started methotrexate to another female with a recent infection who started cyclosporin. And this propensity score technique has really gained a lot of popularity uh, in recent years, mostly because of the transparency. You can really see the balanced risk factors between both groups. So for our paper, we were comparing five drugs. So like I said, methotrexate, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, azathioprine, and prednisone. For the five drugs, we compared them each against each other. So that made for 10 pairwise comparison groups. They entered their treatment when they started their treatment for the very first time. We looked back over the six months before they started the treatment to collect any information on infection risk factors. We gave them propensity scores, applied one-to-one matching to make the groups more similar with regard to those infection risk factors. And then we followed them for six months to see if they had an infection that required them to be hospitalized. Excellent. So that's very helpful. So now for our listeners, what the exciting part is, what did you find? Of course. So in summary, for the non-targeted off-label medications, we found that in AD patients, methotrexate and cyclosporin had a lower six-month risk of infection, while those who were started on mycophenolate, azathioprine, or prednisone had a higher risk of infection. Preliminary Data for apilumab showed lower infection risk than compared to any of these non-biologic systemics. This was very based on small numbers at that time. We only have half a year. Since then, we've done another study and was published earlier where we focused on dupilumab. And there, with robust numbers, we consistently indicated lower infection risk in patients using dupilumab compared to methotrexate, cyclosporin, or mycophenolate. Very interesting. So now... What about the limitations in your study? What, I mean, obviously we've got what you found, but now what are the caveats that we need to consider as we're looking at this information and making decisions? Absolutely. So for mycophenolate and azathioprine comparisons, in particular, we had few users. And as such, that results in fewer events, which means wide confidence intervals. So those should be interpreted with caution. We do So we see like a five-fold increase. And while this points in the direction that, yes, there most likely is an increase, it might not be a five-fold. It might be less. Importantly, we don't have specific six-month cumulative dose exposure for these medications during the follow-up time, most notably systemic prednisone and cyclosporine dosing regimens, which may vary with relative risk of infection by cumulative dose. And as I mentioned earlier, at the time of the analysis, we only had half a year of data for dupilumab. And since then, we've done another study uh, recently published focusing on dupilumab with more robust numbers, consistently pointing towards lower infection rates. So I think you alluded to this, but um, also wasn't a limitation in terms of the issue of whether the medication was being used for induction of treatment versus for treatment of flares versus chronic use? Right. So that was the other thing is that 
sometimes some of these medications like cyclosporine and prednisone are used more frequently for, like you were saying, induction or for flares, while the others are used for more chronic use. You get around this a little bit by having a shorter follow-up of six months and by making sure that they're new users. But yes, absolutely, that is another limitation. Just for clarification for our readers, because the issue would then be, right, that if it's being used for induction, it may be for a shorter period of time so that there's less of a chance there to see some of these side effects. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts, uh, any other questions I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that you point out from your study? No, I mean, I think this is the really great use of observational data, the off-label medications, which we can't study in RCTs. And I think this is something which will be helpful for when seeing a patient and considering what to move towards. And now with dupilumab being a more viable option, this can really be used for those patients who don't qualify for dupilumab or when you need to use something else to start them off. And we're looking forward to doing more research. <laughs> Talking about more research, from your perspective, what are you, the key components for a successful research in dermatology, pharmacoepidemiology? Yeah, so um, derm pharmacoepidemiology, it's really a team sport. As I'm sure we've all experienced coming up with an idea or seeing a knowledge gap is one ex aspect and executing it well is another. And with the complexity of this data, we really need a team of multiple expert methodologists, so experts who are propensity score, other experts who are methods experts in trials. In addition to that, we need multiple consulting dermatology specialists, full-time clinicians who are seeing hundreds of AD patients every day. Having a panel of experts in both areas really allows for multiple perspectives. And when we work together, I mean, the results really are really great. Um, and I personally enjoy the interdisciplinary nature of this work to generate these important insights clinical practice. And I'm very lucky. I work with incredibly smart, dedicated, and sincere people. And um, what better could you hope for in a career? And I think that's an important part, too, because, of course, one of the issues that it's always important now is we're looking at the, the studies and involved medications, and that is the issue of conflicts of interest and other things. And when you're working with some of these mentors who have all this experience, uh, unfortunately, there are conflicts of interest simply because of the, the breadth of the work that they do and the different things that they, they are involved in. So my understanding in your paper, just for our listeners so that they know, is that Dr. Marola, uh, the senior author on your paper, of course, is one of the mentors and has a lot of experience, but because he works with a lot of the companies, there is some conflict of interest on some of these medications. But you yourself and your other colleague, Dr. Parashada, have no uh, conflicts of interest. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. All right. All right. I did have one other question. When we are looking at it in terms of limitations and confounding factors, you know, one of the issues that you're talking about, these are observational studies. In terms of, can you explain a little bit about the, the surveillance bias and the confounding factor there? Yes, absolutely. So surveillance bias, so this often comes in where, well, there's different types, but one of the ways is that patients who are followed more closely by the healthcare system are likely to get adverse events picked up more quickly, right? If you're seeing your physician every month, even if you might think it's not a big deal, 
they'll be like, you know, what is that? Let me check that out. And they'll catch the adverse event sooner. So sometimes if you have a group that's followed more closely, this is like if you're looking at a group of patients with a chronic disease versus a group of patients without a chronic disease, you can sometimes get this. Or if you have an outcome that's not as severe, but people know to look for it, they'll look for it more because they'll warn the patients beforehand. And so they'll have this differential surveillance for these adverse effects. Our outcome, uh, one of the ways to get around this is having a very a strong outcome that's severe enough to avoid this. So even if you're seeing your doctor every month or if you're not seeing your doctor every six months or at all, if you have a serious infection that's warranting hospitalization, you're going to go to the ED and you're going to be caught. It's not going to depend on your treatment. And so you can get around that and avoid that issue well, which worked out for us in this study. All right. So we're pretty much at the conclusion. So if you don't mind, I think just for, for clarification for everybody, one more time, if you could tell them what your conclusions were uh, based on this study, and then what are the most important limitations people need to consider in those as it relates to those conclusions? Yeah. So overall, for patients with atopic dermatitis who started an off-label medication, uh, we found that methotrexate and cyclosporin had a lower six-month risk of getting a serious infection that required them to be hospitalized, while the AD patients who started mycophenolate or azathioprine had a higher risk of developing an infection. And preliminary data with dupilumab showed a lower risk of infection compared to these non-biologics. And then done again with more robust data, we consistently saw the lower infection risk compared to uh, in patients with dupilumab compared to other non-biologic systemic agents. And the caveat being some, for some of the smaller groups like mycophenolate and azathioprine, we have wide confidence intervals, meaning they should be interpreted with caution. And we don't have the cumulative dose exposure for things like pregnisone or cyclosporin, which can vary risk of infection. And different therapies might be used for different reasons. So some might be used more for longer term uh, chronic use, while some might be used for induction in flares. Very good. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you here uh, speaking with us, and it's very, very informative. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.